Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rounders, a history of baseball in America. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am excited to let you know that we have a guest coming on the show today. His name is Sam Gazejack. He was on the show previously, actually, back in 2018. He is uh, well known under the username RIP underscore MLB on social media. He's a baseball historian who combines not only just a love of going back and finding out the true stories behind uh, a lot of players that we don't know much about, but also actually going into cemeteries and finding information and starting from square one and writing obituaries. He's a great guy to talk to. He's going to tell you more about what he does and some stories that he uh, has come together with that he's going to share with us today. We rounded out on a topic uh, around the idea of cup of coffee players. We're going to talk about that term, what it means. I'm excited to get into that, and I think you're really going to enjoy the show. Before we get started, just a real quick plug for a sponsor of the show. Risen Inbound is a marketing firm based out of Miami, and they're focused on helping businesses grow and reach today's 21st century customer. Risen works with companies across the globe, from local startups to international corporations, and they really help build meaningful relationships with potential and returning customers. So if you're a small business owner, if you're looking for an experienced, friendly, results-driven team that can help you, check out Risen by going to their website, www.gorisen.com. That's Risen with a Z. And you can also follow them on social media. They're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can search for them under the username Risen Inbound. One word, Risen Inbound. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Let's get to my conversation with Sam Gazejack. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Rounders, the history of baseball in America. I am excited, honored, thrilled, and uh, curious to uh, have another conversation with uh, someone I've gotten to know since starting this podcast. His name is Sam Gazejack. You may know him as his social media handle, R-I-P-M-L-B. Sam, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate the chance. You know, I went back into the episode history that I have, and you last came on the show in November of 2018. Yeah, that was, uh, I, I had just started the, uh, the, the website, RIP Baseball at that time, and I think it was maybe just like two or three days old, I think, by the time we talked. And, and that's, you know, ironic because I had found you just searching through social media and following different people to be able to keep up with what other historians were doing and come across a lot of uh, the posts that you had put on. And, you know, I didn't get to say it back then, but, you know, it's been almost two years and I never got to say thank you. You came on at the beginning of my show and I think we had a great conversation. And, you know, even looking at the stats for that episode, Sam, it's still getting about 25 plays a week. People are still listening to that episode from two years ago. Wow, that's funny. I'm a journalist; is is my full time job. So I'm used to interviewing people. Uh, this that, that was the first time I was ever actually interviewed, so that was a neat experience for me. Yeah, it's different being on the other side of the microphone. Definitely, it's. Uh, but at the same time, it's exciting, and you know, for you to be able to talk about, um, you know, just the background of, of what you do in terms of researching baseball, you know, uh, players in the past, and that's actually where I want to go now, just very quickly, in case listeners didn't get a chance to get to know you on the previous episode that you had joined uh, for the show, and for those of you that want to go back, that was episode nine, past game interviews, 
our past game, uh, past, yeah, past game interviews, excuse me. That was the name of the episode with Sam Gagejack. Um, Sam, could you overview, uh, what do you do uh, in terms of baseball history? Uh, can you give a little bit of a, an overview of what you've dedicated your social media network and your website towards doing? Yeah, uh, I've, I've got a mutual love of baseball history and cemeteries. And so kind of combining the two seemed like a natural idea. So uh, what I started off doing was going to, uh, uh, going to uh, cemeteries wherever I happen to be traveling and try and find the grave sites of uh, baseball players, uh, owners, executives, uh, just people who are connected with the game somehow. And then I took that information back home and then I started looking up their history because all that I have when I go to the grave sites is just, you know, their name and when they lived. And I wanted to learn a little bit about them. And I thought that maybe there were people out there who would be interested in that as well. And uh, as it turns out, that's really been the case. Um, so I, uh, I take these names and uh, the grave sites and I try and write uh, a little bit of a, a story about their lives and who they were, uh, how they played in baseball, what led them to baseball, what they did after the game. And then uh, afterwards, um, I started doing uh, obituaries of current uh, people who have recently passed along, passed on. And I wanted to do that for the same reason, is because when we look at obituaries of players right now, the most of what is covered is just what teams they played for, when they played, and what their final stats were. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the people behind the stats. And uh, so I've been doing that for a couple of years. And uh, as I said, it's I've been really fortunate that uh, there's been a lot of people who are interested in what it is that I'm doing. And we're going to get a chance to do exactly that again today. And just to give a little bit of background to our listeners, Sam, I had reached out to you, oh man, it was probably three, maybe four weeks ago, and and just asked if you'd be willing to come back on the show to have another conversation. And you had introduced a term to me that I had actually never heard of before. You had mentioned as a topic that we could discuss a cup of coffee players. And I was not familiar with that term. I had to look it up and you had explained it to me. And I think it would be a good place to start because we, we decided on this topic for today. So we're going to be talking about cup of coffee players. Could you overview for our listeners, what does that term refer to? What is a coffee cup player? Sure, sure. Um, so when I first heard the term years ago, this was uh, meant for players who had a real brief stay in the major leagues. Uh, basically, they were up in the majors long enough to get a cup of coffee and then they were sent back down. It seems like now it's gotten modified and specialized a little bit more to where it's referring to players who had exactly one game in the major leagues. So they spent their whole minor league career getting in the majors. They got there, they played the game, and they left and they never made it back. And uh, according to uh, baseball reference, there's around a thousand or so people who qualify as cup of coffee players that way. Uh, it goes back to uh, 1871 where a guy named Frank Norton played his one and only game on May 5th. And it continues up to last year. There was a pitcher named Mike King who, uh, who pitched for the Yankees on September 27, 2019. So, uh, as I said, there's about 1,000 players overall. Um, some of the more famous ones that people have probably heard of is Eddie Goodell, of course, who's the, the smallest person to ever play Major League Baseball. That was part of uh, Bill Veck's famous stunt. Yep. Uh, Moonlight Graham, who people know if you've watched Field of Dreams at all. He played uh, in the outfield for just a part of one game, and that was his career. And then Walt Alston is, uh, is in the Hall of Fame, not for his playing career. His playing career only lasted one game, but he was a Hall of Fame manager. Um, so those are some of the more uh, recognizable names in the Cup of, Cup of Coffee Club. Uh, I like going to find some of the more obscure names because we don't know hardly anything at all about their history. And so it's a lot of fun to try and uncover their life and kind of what led them into baseball, what happened that one game, and what they did outside of it. 
Now you've done some research gathering five players that you've done research on and have found a lot about their lives in the context of what you mentioned. And why don't we go through these chronologically and, and starting off from um, one, you know, the oldest one that you found that we're going to talk about today, Will Wynn. Can you talk to us a little bit about how did he get his start in baseball? What was his background in entering professional baseball? All right, so, uh, so, so Will Wynn's one and only major league game was August 31st, 1894. Uh, he was with the Washington Senators. And uh, I never actually have visited his grave. The way I found out about him is that Oakwood Cemetery in Raleigh, North Carolina, was celebrating their 150th anniversary last year. And that was also uh, Will Wynn's 150th birthday. And they sent me a couple pictures of his grave and asked if I could write a little bit of uh, something about his life. And uh, it was really interesting. I mean, he's one of these guys where baseball is one of the lesser interesting things he did in his life. But uh, William Alvera Wynn was born in North Carolina on March 27, 1869. And he first made his claim to fame as a bicyclist. He was a competitive bicyclist. Uh, He won a lot of speed races, but he was also a trick rider as well. Uh, and when you think trick bicycling, you know, this isn't like the BMX Dave Mira type stuff. Um, What they would do is, they uh, people at the time would take their bikes and try and jump over the longest uh, or the most things that they possibly could find, or just choose the riskiest stunt that they can do and ride their bike down it. Uh, so kind of evil can evilish before his time. Okay, interesting. And and baseball, where did that insert into his life? Did that come up as a habit after he got into trick bicycling? Bicycling, excuse me, or was that something that was kind of also a hobby for him? He was doing that kind of along the same, uh, around the same time, it would appear. So, so he was, some of his big uh, bicycling tricks were, you know, in the early 1890s. Uh, by 1894, he decided to become a professional pitcher. And he tried, a, he uh, played a couple games in the minor leagues, did pretty well there. And then he tried out for the Washington Senators. And his speed was really good. His control was a little questionable, but they decided to sign him anyway. And so on August 31st, 1894, he pitched the second half of a doubleheader between the, the Senators and the Philadelphia Athletics. And uh, it did not go well. Uh, as a lot of these one-game wonder players type, uh, it happens. Their first game is not usually something for the record books, or at least not in any good way. But uh, the Senators lost 11-5. to um, It wasn't his fault all, all entirely. Uh, the Senators had six errors in the game overall. Uh, five of them happened to come in the first inning. Wow. And also, um, Billy Hamilton of the A's stole seven bases in the game, which is uh, still the MLB record. So, uh, so Wynn had a lot of things going against him in that game. Uh, but uh, the game is called after eight innings due to darkness. And so he uh, ends up with a 0-1 record, a 6.75 ERA, with 10 hits allowed, eight walks, two hit batsmen, two wild pitches, and two strikeouts. So his control wasn't that great either. And after that game, that was it. Was he cut from the squad? He he stuck around a little bit longer. Um, he did uh, get get back to Washington with the team. And uh, if his obituaries believe is to be believed, uh, he rode his bike down the steps of the Capitol building as a stunt. And uh, he and some of his teammates got caught trying to smuggle his bike up to the top of the Washington Monument. Ooh. <laughs> so you can imagine what could have happened uh, had that not had that he did not got caught. But uh, he pitched a little bit longer, but he had a lot of other interests, and eventually those things ended up taking over. Um, he was very much into electronics in the early, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, and he ended up co-founding a telephone company, and he helped finance the installation of some of the first phone lines in North Carolina. And uh, he was an inventor as well, so he invented this thing called an automatic phone intelligencer, 
which was designed to help train dispatchers with the number of calls they were getting. So if someone wanted to call the train station and find out if the train was running on time, they could just state the name of the train and an automated message would let them know if it was on time or not. So and this was in 1921 and Bill Wynn essentially invented Siri. So pretty good accomplishment for him. Yeah, I would say so. Is, is he, when, when people discuss his life now, because it sounds like, you know, obviously his life is filled with many accomplishments, is his baseball career mentioned or is it something that's kind of uh, left out of the narrative? You know, when he, when he died, he, did, uh, he was mentioned as a famous baseballist at the time. He died on August 7th, 1951, and that was mentioned in his obituary. But uh, obviously the work he did with the, the, the phones in North Carolina, uh, he also established Raleigh's first radio station. So those things kind of took precedence. But uh, yeah, that was, it was all part of the package of Bill Wynn and how people remembered him afterwards. Okay, so we have our first one in the books, Will Win, like you said, uh, from the 1890s. Why don't we fast forward a little bit in time? And the second name that you gave me was a gentleman named Tom Burr. Tell us a little bit about Tom. All right, well, um, Tom Burr, he, was, he started off as a pitcher, but the only appearance that he actually made in the major leagues was as an outfielder. And uh, he's also significant is that he's one of the few major leaguers who has given his life in service to his country. Uh, he was killed in a plane crash accident in World War I. Um, but Alexander Thompson Burr was born in Chicago on uh, November 1st, 1893. And he attended uh, prep schools in Connecticut and, uh, and Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. And his pitching was so well-known or well-thought of at the time that Yankees manager Frank Chance saw him, gave him a tryout like we saw, and assigned him in early 1914. So he worked out with the Yankees in spring training that spring in, in 1914, and he got on well enough to make the opening day roster, but when the season started, he just couldn't get in playing time. And so the only time he ever appeared in the Major League game was in a 3-2 to two win over the Senators on April 21st, 1914. Uh, they ran out of players, basically, and so they just put him in the outfield for a couple of innings. Um, and he never got a chance to get the field of ball at all, but it wasn't hit his way. And his MLB debut wasn't even mentioned in the recaps. So it was a pretty ignoble debut and, and ended up being his last game as well, because soon afterwards he was sent down to the minor leagues and he pitched a little bit for a team called the Jersey City Skeeters, which is in the International League. But after that year, he left uh, professional baseball entirely. And you said that he entered um, voluntarily, I assume, into the armed services for World War One, or was he drafted? Um, he registered for the draft in, in 1917, and then he uh, was dispatched overseas to go join the American Field Service. Uh, once in France, he was working as a truck driver, but what he really wanted to do was work in the U.S. Air Service. So he attended flying and gunnery school, and uh, was considered to be a really wonderful flyer, and was on his way to the front lines. Uh, but on uh, October 12th, uh, 1918, his plane collided with another plane during uh, target practice, and uh, they crashed into Casal Lake in France, and he was just 24 years old when he died. Uh, his body was eventually recovered about 12 days later, and he was buried in France originally at the American Expeditionary Forces Cemetery Number 29. What happened is that after the war, a lot of those cemeteries were deconsecrated, and so he was returned home, brought back to Chicago, and he is currently uh, at Rose Hill Cemetery Mausoleum in Chicago. Uh, the interesting thing about it is that there were three players who were killed in World War I in action. Uh, there was a bunch more who died 
because of illnesses that they contracted while still stateside. Um, you covered the Spanish flu pandemic uh, not too long ago. So, so that was a real thing that did uh, kill uh, quite a few people who had registered uh, in, in the army. Um, but there were three people who were killed in action. Uh, Eddie Grant is probably the most famous. He died on October 5th. Robert Buntroy was shot on October 7th. And then Tom Burr was killed on September 15th. So all three ballplayers died within a couple of weeks of each other. Now, Tom, uh, you know, this may be something that you didn't uh, jump into in terms of information, but do you know if any of Tom's family after he passed away, maybe his, if he had a son or anybody else in his family, did they continue playing baseball? Did that run in his family or was he the the individual, you know, who made it far in terms of professional baseball? No, it seemed like he was kind of the one and only athlete in the family. And, uh, and he, he was not married, had no children that I know of. Um, but he, he was just, uh, you know, really pretty young. He was, um, what did I say? He was 24 years old. And, um, yeah, he just, he just had the, he, he seemed to have the gift in the family. It seemed like he was a pretty well-to-do family. But as far as athletics go, he was, he was the gifted one. You run across these stories every now and then of these baseball players, you know, who have the talent, they may not get the opportunity. And it really is a combination of skill and luck when it comes down to being able to find success in any professional sport. Oh, yeah. I mean, baseball is weird in the way that people make it to the major leagues. Um, You know, later on, we'll talk about some of the more contemporary occurrences where there's a bit more of a tradition the way that we expect now with people, they get drafted, they play in the minor leagues, they make it to the major leagues. But at this point in time, when we're talking early 1900s, I mean, you can get into baseball in any number of ways, um, ways that you couldn't even possibly begin to imagine now. It just doesn't work that way anymore. Sure. And, you know, you mentioned one coming up that's going to illustrate that perfectly. So let's keep moving on. We talked about Will Wynn. We talked about Tom Burr. The next name that I have on my list for us to discuss in terms of cup of coffee players is a gentleman, and he wins the award for greatest first name, Tink Turner. Tell us about Tink. So, so, so Tom Tink Turner, he, as I said, you know, there are lots of ways to get into baseball about this time. Uh, his way to get into baseball, he asked for a job. Um, so he, he was born in, uh, in Pennsylvania on February 20th, 1890, and he pitched at the University of Pennsylvania, got into professional baseball, did all right. He had some decent years, some really not so good years. Um, one year he pitched for uh, the Toledo Mudhens in 1914, and he had a 5-22 and record. So, you know, he, he had, you know, a lot of off and on uh, statistics. Not a guy that you would think would make it to the major leagues. But what he decided to do was in 1915, after his minor league season was done, he traveled to Pennsylvania. He had a talk with the A's manager, who's Connie Mack, and he asked for a tryout, and Mack decided to just throw him into the major leagues. So he ended up starting a doubleheader against the White Sox on September 24th, 1915. So you're telling me that Tink Turner just goes up to Connie Mack, I don't know, at a restaurant, maybe goes to the park and sees him sitting on the bench and just flat out asking, hey, I want to play baseball. Give me a spot. You know, it's not – I did find another player, and I can't think of his name right now, who, who basically did the same thing. He asked for a tryout. He got the tryout. Um, Connie Mack was a little unorthodox, I think, in the way he handled his roster management. Sure. Uh, the A's at this time, it was the end of the season. 
the A's had already lost 100 games. It, you know, they had nothing going for him. So I think he just figured he had nothing to lose but to just give this kid a try and see if lightning he can catch lightning in a bottle. Um, it, it didn't work. He lasted for two innings in his start. Uh, he got pounded for six runs, five of which were earned. Uh, he walked three and he gave up a home run to shoeless Joe Jackson. So his career stats, he's got an 0-1 record and a 22-50 ERA. Ooh. Well, hey, at least one of those home runs came off a of shoeless Joe. That's, that's a claim to fame. If you're going to give up a home run to somebody, have a guy who probably ought to be in the Hall of Fame. So that's, <laughs> that's not a bad deal. <laughs> and, so uh, what about life after baseball for Tink? So apparently after the game, he and Mac had a heart-to-heart to talk about his career. Um, Mac really needed a scout who can go to some of these Bush leagues and find good players. Uh, Turner agreed that he wasn't a good player, but and because he wasn't a good player, he knew what it took to be a good player, and so he could find some of these guys. So he ended up, as a result of just coming to a game, asking for a chance, and, and failing miserably, uh, ended up becoming a scout for the, for the A's. And uh, he was apparently a really good one. He ended up bringing a lot of talent to the A's. Um, not perfect. Um, I did find this quote about him from, uh, from the early 20s about Babe Ruth. He said, I don't look for the baby playing in the majors after 1923 as he looks too heavy to get around. Of course, he may find some kind of flesh producer which will prolong his stay. So not a, not, not a 100% track record, but still pretty darn good. Um, and he ended up capitalizing on that one game. Um, he ended up becoming involved with the team out of Portland, Oregon, called the Beavers. And he was a manager uh, for the team for a time. He was a consultant afterwards. And then he became a part owner of the team. And this was back when the minor leagues were independent of the major leagues. Mm-hmm. So what they tried to do in order to make money is that they would find good players, train them, get them ready for the majors, and then sell them to the highest bidder. Um, theoretically, that is what was happening here, but um, we do have, uh, he, he worked a lot with the A's, even though he was supposed to be independent. Uh, after a couple of weeks of owning the team, he worked out a trade with the A's that sent them a Hall of Fame catcher, Mickey Cochran, back when he was about maybe 20 or 21 years old. Wow. And he got back five players whom you've never heard of, nobody has ever heard of, <laughs> and got about $50,000 in cash for him. So um, that was a pretty good deal for him, and it just conveniently worked out really well for the A's. Uh, yeah, I guess you could say Connie Mack's intuition was right because it did work out, maybe not on the field, but off the field it certainly did. Yeah, and he brought in a number of good players. I mean, Cochran's obviously the big name because that was uh, the Hall of Fame type guy, but there's a good number of players that he brought over to the team that uh, contributed to some of their success. And uh, he, he ended up – he stayed with Portland until about 1943 – and uh, Turner scouted for the A's for a little bit longer, but he retired in 1949. And, and, and was that the, uh, the end of his career in baseball when he did that final retirement? It seemed like he did that. He kind of pretty much just uh, went back to Pennsylvania and uh, enjoyed retirement up until he died on February 25th, 1962 from, uh, from cancer. But he, would, uh, he had just turned 72 five days before. Now, I got to ask, Tink, was that his uh, Christian first name or was that a nickname that he picked up early on in life? It was Tom Turner, and I, I looked for where Tink came from, and I never could find it. And I never could find any reference to him being named Tink, except on Baseball Reference. And it seems like there are some players on, on some of these websites who uh, their, their nickname is given to them and it's not really anything that they ever went by in an actual during their life or anything that they were known for. So I'm not sure where Tink 
came from. I don't know if he ever answered to it, but it's it's there on uh, on the baseball websites for all eternity. Yep, there you have it, Tink. That's uh, the legacy you're going to have to live with with that first name. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I have to give him credit, Sam. I mean, the guy knew what he wanted. He went for it. It didn't work out, you know, obviously on the first try in terms of his playing career, but he kept going. And, you know, he obviously, you know, you mentioned he had the baseball chops in order to be able to succeed, uh, if not on the field, off the field. And never underestimate the value of good old-fashioned chutzpah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and this is a guy to remember in that case, the, the patron mm-hmm. saint, Tink Turner. <laughs> All right, let's go to our next name. We have uh, Bill Webb. Tell us about Bill Webb. All right, so so Bill Webb, it was it, we're, we're moving ahead to about the 1940s now, um, but it kind of happened almost the same way uh, as as Tink Turner did. But Bill Webb was born in Atlanta on December 12, 1913, and 30 years or so later, he gets into baseball. But before that, he'd been working in a lot of the uh, the amateur baseball scene in Atlanta for about five years beforehand, and he was really well known in Atlanta. Um, as what happens with a lot of guys who are amateur league or sandlot league superstars when they get to the, the professional minor leagues, it doesn't work as well. And he had some really good years, again, at the minors. Um, he was a really good hitter, too. He hit over 400 one time uh, while playing in the, in the Class D League in 1941. Um, his ERA was a little hit and miss, so not so great. But um, in 1943, you know, talent is scarce because the draft has called away a lot of really good players. So teams are looking for people who can just fill roster spaces. Sure. And so he um, decided to try and get a job at, in, uh, in the majors by starting a letter writing campaign to the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, he started asking for a job. Uh, when uh, the letters didn't get him anywhere, he started actually making phone calls to the team's general manager, uh, reversing the charges and telling them just how great he was and how he ought to get a shot at the major leagues. Uh, the Phillies changed ownership around this time, so he had to start everything over from scratch uh, to starting with the letter, starting with the phone calls with the new ownership, and again, it actually worked. He got uh, invited to spring training, and so um, the, the manager was a guy named Bucky Harris at the time, and he called him the Dizzy Dean of the Phillies training camp. Hmm. Didn't really mean that in regards to his pitching ability, but more for his Dizzy personality, <laughs> but hey, it, it, got him, it got him a name. And it actually got him uh, a shot in the major leagues. So he actually made the team. Uh, again, when you've got these guys who are kind of like the last name on the roster, he didn't get the chance to pitch until May 15, 1943. Uh, he was brought in, in relief in this game. The Phillies were down to the Cardinals 5-3. to three. And so he goes in in the ninth inning, winds up, and the very first pitch he throws gets knocked over the fences by the opposing pitcher, Mort Cooper of the Cardinals. Wow. So his first pitch, home run. So not not the stellar debut that he was hoping for. Um, Cooper hit six home runs in his career. So, I mean, he wasn't a slouch. He, he was no slouch at the plate, but sure. not the way you want your first hitter to go. No, definitely not. Did he get pulled after that batter? He survived the inning. He, he got the next, the next guy walked. And then after that, uh, the next guy after that was a guy named Harry Walker. And he hit a line drive that got turned into an unassisted double play. So he got out of that inning after he retired Stan Usual on a grounder to first. And so that was the extent of his career was one inning, one run allowed, and a nine ERA. Now, was it a situation where in your research did you find out, was he cut right after that game? Did he get sent to the minors? Did he play out the season on the bench? What was uh, the wind down in terms of his career? 
he lasted a little bit longer. Um, back in the time, you know, you know, we've got expanded rosters now at the end of the season. Back in, uh, back in the baseball for the longest time, actually, they had expanded rosters at the start of the season. So for the first month of the, of the season, you could have more than 25 guys on the roster. Mm-hmm. And so Webb was kind of like the 26th or 27th guy. Um, so he got into that one game. He pitched in a couple of exhibition games. But then uh, he was sent to the minors on May 29th. And he pitched through 1950, uh, had some decent years. He was a 20-game winner in the minor leagues. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, he won uh, 69 games in the minors all total. But uh, he did retire after that. And then he went back to Atlanta and worked for the Atlanta Fire Department for 27 years. Wow. And he ended up retiring in 1974. And then he uh, passed away about 20 years after that. So June 1st, 1994, he, uh, he died in, at the age of 80. Now, was he the kind of individual from your research again, you know, as uh, his legacy was being written, you know, certainly uh, a public servant serving on the fire department, you know, dedicating his life to helping others. Was baseball something that he actively was known for accomplishing or was that something that he kind of let slide in terms of uh, past accomplishments in the later parts of his life? Yeah, it didn't seem like he talked about it too much. I really couldn't find a ton of it. It didn't seem like he was, you know, readily interviewed much uh, after his baseball career. So it kind of seems that he just went back home to Atlanta. He he worked steadily at his job, retired, and and when he passed away, that was pretty much what he was mostly known for was being uh, being a firefighter. And you know, if if baseball was mentioned at all, it was kind of you know one of the last couple of paragraphs in the obituary. You know, I think, uh, you know, we think about baseball players today, and I think we, we've gotten into this mindset where we imagine, you know, every player after they retire is going to be an analyst on ESPN, or they're going to go on and be a professional coach, or they're going to coach at the college level, or, you know, stay in some sort of a position of, of uh, being well known by the public. But I mean, especially like you're saying, you know, up until maybe the 1980s and later, players just picked up regular jobs after they finished their careers, especially if they, you know, didn't make tons of money or become perennial all-stars. They'd be painters, like you said, firefighters, you know, they became your average Joes very quickly after their careers ended. Oh yeah, no, we had, I mean, this was, you know, back in the forties, you know, Webb, he pitched in, you know, probably say he gave it up around 33 years old or so. You still got most of your life ahead of you, and nobody really made a ton of money in baseball. Uh, this is before collective bargaining. This is before multi-year contracts. Mm-hmm. Players were still bound by the reserve clause, which meant you were paid whatever the team decided to pay you, and your options, if you didn't like it, were to quit or to hold out for more money. Yep. Well, I mean, if Bill Webb decides he's going to hold out for more money, no one's going to no one's going to bat an eye about that. So yeah, you when you when you were done playing at this age, you've got to go to work. Yep. Yep. It's true. And, and just something to remember, I think, especially for the younger listeners, it, and we'll have to talk about the birth of free agency. And like you said, getting rid of the reserve club at some point on this show, because players just had it bad up until, you know, a certain point in terms of being able to control their own futures. And uh, these are perfect examples of that. Once their careers are over, there's, there's no safety net, really. They have to, like you said, pick up and keep on with life. So why don't we go ahead and jump into our last individual that we're going to be discussing today. And this is our most recent, as you had mentioned, Sam, since we're going in chronological order. Uh, Let's talk about Hank Small. Tell us a bit about his life. 
All right, so so Hank Small, he played his one and only game on September 27, 1978. And this is probably a bit more of the developmental uh, career that you might expect from someone. It's, it's, it's more modern day. Uh, but he was born in Atlanta on July 31st, 1953. And he was a great high school player. Um, he hit some home runs that were still talked about up until the day he died. So he could have had a chance to go uh, into the pros at that point in time after graduating from high school. Uh, the Orioles drafted him in the 1971 draft, but he decided to go to the University of South Carolina in Columbia, and he pretty much rewrote the record books for power while he was there. Um, as an example of what he was, his coach at USC said uh, he reminded me so much of Mickey Mantle. He had that power. He could run. The only difference was Mantle was a switch hitter. Hank didn't need to be a switch hitter because he could hit to all fields. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really nice for a college coach to say that about you, to compare you to Mickey Mantle. But yeah. uh, Hank yeah. Small's college coach was Bobby Richardson, who was a former Yankee and a teammate of Mantle. So if anybody was going to make that, that, that uh, comparison and have it mean something, it would be him. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so Hank Small was – he's a phenomenal power hitter in college. Um, this was uh, – about he, he came in about the time that aluminum bats were starting to be used. So uh, in his junior year, he hit 17 home runs, which was the school record. Uh, he then hit 19 record home runs in 1975 to break his own record. He was a first-team All-American, and uh, the, the Gamecocks made it to the College World Series but lost to Texas 5-1. to uh, He provided the one run with a solo home run. And that 19 home runs in a career stood as the school record until 1985. And the 48 home runs that he hit as a, in a career – was a school record until Justin Smoke came along from 2006 to 2008. So when he wrote, when he rewrote the record book, it stayed rewritten for a good long while after he left. Um, he even took part in a home run hitting contest between the Mets and the Yankees, and he beat Thurman Munson in a home run derby. So wow. he had some pretty phenomenal power. Yep. And in, in 1975, he gets drafted in the fourth round by the Atlanta Braves. And so it's kind of a fairy tale at this point because this uh, Atlanta kid uh, is a hometown slugger in high school, goes off to college as the conquering hero, and then he gets drafted by his hometown team. And, and that sets up the future to where he could be playing, you know, back at home in front of his family and friends for what looked like could be a good long career. Sure. Uh, didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> Tell us about the, uh, the, the shot, the chance that he got, I guess you could say, and how that went. Yeah, so, uh, so he starts off, as I said, this is kind of the, 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 the arc that we would expect. He starts off in A ball, does well there, goes up to A ball, uh, double A, uh, goes up to triple A, and he struggles a little bit. He gets demoted for a time. Um, so it's kind of a, a come and go a little bit. And then in 1978, he's up in triple A with Richmond, and he has a phenomenal year. He ends up becoming the MVP of the International League that year. Uh, he hit 289. He hit 29 doubles, 25 homers. He drove in 101 runs. Uh, just a phenomenal year. And so the Braves reward him with a trip to the major leagues as a September call-up in 78. He gets one chance to start. It was on uh, September 27th, as I said, against the Houston Astros. And the Braves get shut down by Vern Rule and Joe Sambito. They lose 5-0. Five, five uh, Small goes 0-4 at the plate and grounds into a double play. Uh, fields really well at first base, though. He makes 12 putouts and uh, apparently made a really good play on a foul ball that went near the stands. Mm -hmm. But that was it. He never got a chance to play in the major leagues again. Uh, they didn't use him for the rest of the year. 
And it's kind of weird that they didn't because he was a hometown slugger. They didn't really, they had some interesting roster situations the Braves did at that point in time, but they never decided to give him any further of a tryout. Wow. Um, so, so what else is going on at that time is that the Braves have this other kid, a guy named Dale Murphy, you may have heard of him. Yeah. Um, and they don't know what to do with him. He comes up as a catcher, but they don't want to put him, they don't want to keep him as a catcher because they think he can do a little bit more to that. So they try him at, first base they try him in the outfield they try him in a few different places um he's a little bit ahead of small development wise but the braves have these two slugging first basemen uh, both of whom didn't learn to play the outfield or in in the minors and they just never could figure out how to get him on the field at the same time and then they go and hire uh, they sign another free agent first baseman again named mike lum uh, to make that crowded playing field even more crowded so now you've got three first basemen and clearly they just didn't know what to do with Hank Small. Um, the Braves, it ends up looking like the Braves just gave him basically a token appearance in the majors, a chance to play in front of their friends and family, and that was it. Um, even some of the, the last game of the 78 season, it went 14 innings, and he was one of two players who didn't get into the game. And uh, then later in 1979, they removed him from the 40-man roster, which is kind of the gateway that you need to cross in order to get into the major leagues, and they didn't tell him about it. They said that they sent him a registered letter, but it got lost in the mail. So, oh. it, yeah, I mean, Braves management, I, I, you know, I, I live in Atlanta. I follow the Braves. I don't wish them badly, but it seems like they, their management has been dumb for a lot longer than it's been smart. And, <laughs> um, and they just, I, I, it kind of feels like they had this opportunity to at least give the slugger a chance to see what he could do, and they just never took it. Um, so in, in 79, Obviously, he gets cut in spring training. He gets sent back down to the minors, and he's miserable. I mean, he, he's bitter. He's upset, uh, and it carries over into the field, and he hits just 220. He doesn't really hit much power, and he ends up getting released at the end of the season, and he's done. He retires. Wow. You know, so, that's, that's a heartbreaking story. It really is because, you know, I would have loved to have seen him, you know, come on, Atlanta, at least trade the guy. You know, I know we're talking about the 1970s, so, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, smart moves, in terms of prospects and drafting, it's it's not as, you know, thought out as we would think it to be now. But Or even for him to just follow up and try and get a slot on another team to just call it, you know, that that's so sad for a guy that obviously, you know, he experienced a good amount of success, like you said, even on the International League, and that's no small feat. No, no, I mean, that was one step away from, from the major leagues, and he, he dominated. So, I mean, you'd think that a guy like that, you would give more than four at batch just to see what he was capable of. But, uh, again, you know, maybe there are some other stories that weren't told uh, publicly, but I don't know what the Braves' rationale was. Um, and, and you can say that for a few things that they did back at that time. Um, this was, you know, before they went on their tremendous run in the 80s or in the 90s when they were winning division title after division title. Uh, before then, it was really questionable some of the things that they did. And, uh, and, and Small just never really adjusted to it. Um, he ended up getting divorced from his high school sweetheart. Um, he sold insurance for a little while. Uh, he ended up uh, working for a groundskeeping company that maintained baseball fields around Atlanta. So, you know, and it seems like, you know, off, aside from all that, um, he developed a lot of the problems that Mickey Mantle had in adjusting to the real world. Sure. And if you know Mickey Mantle's story, um, that's pretty well well chronicled about uh, about his alcohol abuse and, and the problems that he had uh, trying to be part of the real world. And it kind of seems that Small had the same, the same things. Um, now, he eventually kind of ended up turning his life around. 
uh, he ended up working as a, as a maintenance person, as I said, working for a lot of these fields where he was a star on, you know, back in his high school and Sandlot days. Mm-hmm. But it seems like, you know, by 2010, he was starting to straighten his life out a little bit. He'd gotten engaged. He kind of found religion and was in a better place. He bought a new house in Griffin, Georgia. And then on March 3rd, as he was moving in, he stumbled backward off of his front stoop and fell and he hit his head on the sidewalk and he lost consciousness. Excuse me. He lost consciousness. Uh, he never woke up after that. And he uh, passed away shortly afterwards and he was just 56 years old. Wow. Uh, boy, we should have, we should have started with Hank Small. That's a, that's a sad story to end the show. I got to say, Oh, um, so Hank, you know, is he, um, is he remembered well? I know you've dug up this information. Can you talk to us a little bit about, uh, in terms of, is he still revered by the local community as the high school star that he turned out to be in the success in college and otherwise? Um, you know, well, in, in Atlanta, I mean, he was, um, you know, when he passed away, there was a lot of remembrance of his career then. Um, but after I posted the story on my website, I got a, a ton of hits from a forum in South Carolina that was, uh, it was, it was a USC, uh, basically a fan site. And so uh, someone posted uh, a link to, uh, to the, the story there and dozens upon dozens of people spoke up about, you know, I remember when he played, I saw him hit these home runs. So among, among the people who remember him play, they still think very highly of him and, and his, his home run hitting abilities. You know, and like you said, with, with these five individuals, you know, all examples of people that had the talent, maybe didn't have the timing, unfortunately, to be able to capitalize on their their opportunities, you know, having one chance to be able to prove your your talent level, it's just, it's a lot to ask of anybody to go out and perform on that level and not get a second chance to do so. So for each of these individuals, I think the story here is, you know, it's important to keep trying, but I think it's also important to remember, you know, Uh, Everything is about timing and you have to capitalize on your opportunities as best you can and hope for the best. Oh yeah. I mean, and and then, you know, going back to the very start of baseball professional uh, professional speaking in 1871, there have been fewer than 20,000 people who have ever played a major league game of baseball. So even if you get in that one game, you are still part of a really, really elite fraternity. And that is something that they can claim as fame. Absolutely. To be able to just play one game on that level, it's, it's got to be a, a huge honor, I'm sure. And Sam, I know you, you've done stories on a lot of individuals who have really interesting backgrounds uh, when it comes to the, not only their careers in baseball, but what they did before and after their careers. And just uh, as we wrap up here, could you talk a little bit about listeners that may want to find out more about your research and read more of the stories that you've put together in terms of individuals' lives? How can they connect with you? Oh, sure. Um, probably the easiest way is to go to uh, www.ripbaseball.com. Um, that's where I've got uh, most of my stories and obituaries up there now. Um, you can also find me. I am on Instagram at um, RIP underscore MLB and Twitter. Uh, same thing, RIP underscore MLB. And I've also got a Facebook page at uh, RIP Baseball there. So uh, I talk a little bit about uh, players from the past, players who have recently deceased. Uh, I'll put up photos of uh, some random cemeteries that I go to. uh, Just if I happen to find a a pretty looking picture, I'll put those up there as well. And um, whatever other interesting ephemera that I happen to find while I'm doing my research. Well, Sam, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and discussing these five players. And hopefully we can have you on again soon. It was a pleasure. Thanks again for the chance, Jeff. I appreciate it. 
And that brings today's episode to a close, everybody. I'd like to thank you again for tuning in to another episode. A special thanks to Sam for coming on the show and discussing these five players and a cup of coffee players in general. And I'm going to be uh, spending this week on social media, diving in a little bit more into these players to be able to add some photos to the names and be able to give you some more opportunities to learn more about these people, as well as some links to some of Sam's work so you can read some of what he has written up as well. I'll also include links to his social media and website in the show notes, so please take some time to check that out and follow him. He is uh, just a really interesting person to have pop up in your feed on a regular basis. But uh, overall, folks, I appreciate the support. Every episode you tune in, every episode makes it uh, more and more fun to do. So just remember, you can always help me by going on and sharing the podcast by leaving a review. Whatever app you use, please go ahead and just leave uh, some sort of star review or even just a short sentence saying if you enjoy the show. If you have ideas for episodes, please email me at rounderspodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's rounderspodcast at gmail.com. And before I close the show, I forgot to mention in the beginning, great news. We just got on a whole bunch of new platforms for this podcast. So uh, I could rattle off the five or six that I got emails on, but we're on Spotify officially now. We're on Overcast. We're on CastBox. We're on Breaker. So we went from about four platforms to now I think we're on about 10. So um, tell friends. If they don't uh, use just the iTunes podcast app, uh, if they use Google Podcasts, if they use Spotify, if they use um, Stitcher, any of these, they can now listen to the show on those platforms as well. So great news. Overall, thanks for tuning in, and we will see you on the next episode. And remember, how could I forget the catchphrase? There are only two seasons, winter and baseball. <laughs>